Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Carbonite. Backing up the files on your Mac or PC is safe and easy with Carbonite. For a free trial plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com offer code TWIP. And by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account for six months, go to Squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP8. This week on TWIP, are photographers becoming post-production artists, controlling your camera with an Android, and shooting kids in public places. It may be legal, but is it cool? It's Saturday, August 13th, 2011, and this is TWIP. Hey everyone, welcome back to This Week in Photo, your weekly source of photographic inspiration. And uh, this is Alex. I'm sitting in for Frederick, who is uh, out. He had a personal emergency, and so I'm, uh, I'm sitting in for him. And I'm here with Catherine Hall and Ron Brinkman. Hey, guys. Hey. Yo. Hi, hi, listeners. Catherine, <laughs> I, 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 I feel like I, just, I, I was just on a show with you. That's because you were. That's well, right. <laughs> yes, because you were, and people loved you. Oh, and and I, I thought you did a great job. I, it was I, I just kind of was sitting. On, so for those of you listening, um, uh, Catherine is host of uh, Twit Photo. Uh, so um, I know that gets a little confusing because people are like, "When is Twip coming on?" Uh, on because we used to be at about the same time um, on Tuesday, on Tuesdays. I think I think it was in the morning or whatever. So, uh, and so the, uh, uh, you know, on the Twit network. And so I think people are a little confused, but uh, Twit photo is a whole different show a whole different style of show. You're, you're really doing interviews of different photographers and talking about what, what makes them tick, right? Yeah, definitely. And it complements this show very well, I would say. Yeah. So it's, it's worth a listen to If you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. Um, we're basically bringing in pretty much the world's best photographers out there and having them come in and give us tips on how they approach their work and any technical tips they have, what they carry in their bag. And it's just an overall show that's meant to educate, inspire and empower photographers of all levels to just get out there and shoot and get better at photography. Yeah. We had, and Jasmine Starr was on the last one and I thought she just did a great job. You did a yeah, great job with the interview so too. Much fun. Yeah. It's so much fun. Yeah. So it's great. And, I'll, and I, I'm, I'm going to be uh, on with Catherine again next week. Uh, Leo is in uh, uh, jury duty. And so, uh, so if you, uh, if you hear this show before then, uh, definitely tune in and check it out. And if you don't just go download it. And uh, now Ron, have you been uh, traveling around the world or you've just been mostly in, um, uh, yeah, not, I mean, I, I've been on since I took that last trip to the Canadian Rockies and took pictures of Rockies. How's the film developing been going? <laughs> you know, we're, I'm using this thing called digital now. Really? Yeah. Oh, we should talk about that sometime. We should, we should really, you know, because the deck tall, I'm, I'm having a hard time finding it. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's getting tough. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking digital might be the way of the future. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm still holding back judgment, but... Maybe. Can people see any of the photos that you've been taking online? Uh, yes, if they bounce around on Google Plus, I think I put some up there. I put some up on Flickr too. I think you can just search for Ron Brinkman on Flickr. Okay, there you go. Yeah. And so, so uh, Ron, does it? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Kathy. No. Does it ever get tiring, Ron? What? Traveling. <laughs> it's not like I travel that much, but oh, you don't no, travel. It doesn't. 
Well, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I travel a fair amount. It's all relative, right? I don't travel that much relative to Alex, I don't think. I just get into the zone. Yeah. Well, I don't think Alex has as much time to take pictures when he travels, which is, you know. I try to take as many as I can. I take a lot of weird pictures that probably, you know, tend to get us in trouble because, you know, I'm taking like architectural points or especially because I've I've now gotten into this new, um, this is kind of photography related. There's this thing called Photofly that, um, and if you're taking lots of photos, this is something that's free. If you and uh, you just need a you need a win- copy of Windows. I know this is odd coming from a Mac guy. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well I mean, like, oh, you lost me. Yeah, well, I mean, you can you can you know, there's this great thing you know called Parallels or Boot Camp for your Mac, and you can boot it into uh, Windows. And I have it on. I think almost every machine we have is is uh, dual boot. And so, uh, anyway, if you boot into Windows, you can, Autodesk has this thing called Photofly, and uh, and I really should have made cool. this my I should really should have made this my recommendation for the week. So now I have to think of something else. Anyway, so it was uh, going to be mine actually. So oh, was it? I ruined yeah. both of our recommendations. So. Um, <laughs> Anyway, Photofly, what it does is... You guys is are it, just trying to fit in as many as possible. Yeah, exactly. We figured, <laughs> oh, we're going to get ahead here. Uh, <laughs> Photofly, basically, you take an, uh, pictures of uh, objects from different, uh, different angles, and uh, it will generate a 3D model from the photographs. It's crazy. Oh, wow. It's crazy. It's, it's extremely... It, this has sort of been coming for a little while. I mean, we've played with tools that can do this, Alex, yeah. where... Yeah. And, and they've always been sort of a, a pain in the butt to deal with, and... You know, it, it's effectively analyzing all of these different photos from all these different angles, figuring out the correspondences. From there, you can kind of figure out, okay, this because this object there, this point on the image moved a little bit less than this point did, then there must be a different des- distance from the camera. And all this crazy math to kind of figure out what's the kind of 3D environment behind it. Well, and, and basically, it's, I mean, it almost works. I mean, I always try to explain it like GPS. Like, first thing it does, it looks at about... They typically will find eight to twenty points per per photograph. Sometimes more, sometimes less, but um, but the usually it's a minimum of eight or ten points on every photograph that it needs to have. And oftentimes with these new programs, it'll catch a lot more than that. Then what it does is it, it compares those. It tries to find points that are the same. So it might grab hundreds of points, but what it's trying to find is eight to ten points that correspond with other angles that you've taken. From there, what it can do is actually triangulate the position of the cameras. And whoever is typing, we can hear you, just in case you're wondering. It's yeah. not me. I was wrong. <laughs> Catherine. <laughs> you can't type during the show, I'm afraid, because we can hear everything you do. You've got, so, like, you've got this pneumatic keyboard there, too. Yeah, I know. I was like... Really? Wow. It's fine with you guys. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so the so with this... Uh, so what it does is it figures out where the cameras are, and then once it knows where all the cameras are, I mean, down to the millimeter, it can now u- use that to triangulate the position of all the points, and it creates... I mean, I, I, if you go up to Alex... We'll put this in the show notes, but if you go up to Alex Lindsay PXC, uh, that's my YouTube... Uh, my Kind of my experimental YouTube account where I just throw stuff, and you'll see a couple uh, odd videos of, of, of rocks that I, that I took photos of, and I was stunned. When it came out, I was just... Uh, it's- Stunned. It's pretty amazing. Well, and so the funny thing is, so there's this this uh, Photofly that that Autodesk just announced, uh, or at least you know, kind of started showing publicly in this last week. And then also somebody had done a a hack to uh, a connect mm-hmm. in the gaming system to do pretty much the same thing. This sort of real time deal where you walk around, take take uh, just just start pointing the camera around your environment, and it will recreate the the 3D nature of it. And, 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 really and you know, there's systems that do this. There's systems that do this for you, and they're like a quarter million dollars each. Lidar yeah, systems. Yeah. So now we're getting down to the you know free or ultra cheap kind of thing. And I, and I, you know, I think we should kind of pull this back to how does this? What does this mean for photographers? 
and for me, this this is sort of part of this ongoing drive to where photography is going to become even more of a post-process. And we've already kind of gotten to this world. Digital is really bringing us to this scenario where you spend more time in the post-process than you do taking the photo. Right. That's always kind of been the case, but it seems like more and more stuff is being pushed to the, the back end. So, you know, now you're doing raw, tweaking on the raw images and doing a lot more with balancing. What are the highlights and the shadows? There's that Lytra stuff that we'll talk about in, in a little bit that uh, lets you choose your focus after the fact. And really what this is going to give you is you can go out and shoot a few photos of a scene from a few different locations and then change where you're standing uh, after the fact. <laughs> and well, and not only that, you can you, if you have the 3D model that's as accurate as this one is, which is fairly you know fairly accurate you can do a lot of that refocusing so if everything's in focus when yeah, you shoot exactly. it you can generate a depth map and from that depth map you can then generate uh you can take that depth map into photoshop for instance and control that's one of the things i'm planning to do with the the little experiment that i did with those stones so the question is, is the art of capture just gonna go away it, you know, yeah it's so interesting to me because i see all like for example with all and i'm I don't want to talk to, about HDR because it's been discussed ad nauseum, but yes. you know, you see all this stuff where things look so cool, but it, is it really a great photo? Not so much, but it's HDR out and da da da. And I just wonder, you know, HDR is going to get boring soon enough, and then what's next? This well, but the thing the thing we, we want you want to think about with HDR is that what we're looking at right now is early baby steps, and it's, and what you're really seeing on Flickr or on. Uh, the web when you search for HDR is tone mapping, which is that we're going to take this huge image that we took, that we, uh, this huge amount of, of lighting information, yeah, we're dynamic gonna, range. and we're going to squeeze that down into what we can display on the screen or what we want to, or what we want to display on the screen. The, the issue is, is that real HDR is that I'm going to leave all that data there. So I have all that data. So imagine being able to capture a scene so right now it's it's a it's a fad and the tone mapping is one way to do it but imagine being able to um take a photo where you can where everything is there from the filaments in the lights all the way to the darkest shadows in the scene and you have all that information it could be 20 stops 30 stops 40 stops of information that is all combined into one image and you can grab that exposure from any point you can you can re-expose that image um, yeah, I think that's really it. it. It's, you know, HDR is just an extension of raw shooting, right? You know, people shoot raw because they want to have that extra flexibility of being able to pull down detail in the highlights. And this is, HDR just takes that to a much greater level and it's yeah. all going to be in camera at some point. And but I think I mean, that's... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so there's the distinction between what are you capturing and what are you doing with it? And right now what people are doing with it is kind of, you know, the kids that just discovered the crayon box and yeah, doing yeah. whack stuff. But I think ultimately it's not going to be that whole term HDR is going to go away because it's just going to be I've taken a picture and my raw data is now 20 stops instead of, you know, maybe one or two over. But you don't even think about it. It's just going to be all of your post-processing tools, your aperture, your Lightroom yeah. uh, are just going to include tools that say help me do a better job of balancing these you know super bright skies that are blown out along with the shadows underneath this deep copse of trees. And so that's that's really where I think all of this is going. I think I mean, but this goes back to you know how Ansel Adams used us in a sense the, the older version of HDR, and yes. I think I think I guess what I brought up is you know the the point of the art of capture and how it's sort of getting lost with all these technological advances. Well, and that 
and let me finish uh, in that people, um, it's like the subject is, is it the treatment or is it the actual subject? So is this a gorgeous photograph or is it just gorgeous because it's in HDR and we're not used to seeing that crazy detail? Well, again, and, and I'd say, again, what we're seeing is, is tone mapping. And, and HDR yeah. itself is not particularly one thing or the other. It's just a, a lot of exposure. And and the thing is, is I think that we're gonna, there are certain things that lend themselves to reframing and reshooting. When you're talking about architectural sh- uh, photography, when you're talking about uh, landscape photography, uh, uh, you know, marketing photography. There's a lot of things there that that make a lot of sense there. When you're taking pictures of people, it's a long time before that's gonna. Uh, I think it's gonna be a long time before we get quite the level of exposure. Um, you know, we're not gonna. You know, eventually we I, are gonna I get to a point where I don't agree. Okay. Actually, I think that all of this is. I mean, I think there's gonna be this nostalgia for I. You know, the good old days where I could take a photo and sort of feel like I was done with it, versus bringing it yeah. to the lab. But, you know, even if I'm doing street photography or people photography, taking two or three photos and just sort of knowing that my computer can go back and identify the fact that that light pole that I inadvertently stuck behind somebody's head is now a fully identified object. And it's going to be a matter of a button press or two to kind of remove it from the scene. I think people are going to find tremendous value in that. And you can argue that, okay, a good photographer wouldn't have done that in the first place. But the bottom line is I just feel like all of this is a drive towards post-processing. And you'll always have... You know the purists who feel like I, you know, they're going to only they're only going to shoot, uh, you know, instant photos and feel like there should be no touching done afterwards. But I really think it's just a matter of this is all kind of shifting more and more to, as a post process. Well, and and I think that also, I mean, there there is a, a big push. A lot of people really like to do stuff like Instagram, you know, where it or you know a lot of those other, and a lot of these other ones that actually mess up the photos, you know, and they they tweak the photos while you're shooting them, and there's no way for you to make that adjustment, and there is this accidental art that occurs. Uh, and you see this in filmmaking where if you do too much previs and too much planning, you actually end up with a sterile film because there's a lot of things that happen on set that you didn't expect to happen. And you, and if you are there open to take advantage of those things, uh, you're going to end up with a better photo. So the the goal is to do that. I think that there is uh, – if you're taking pictures when – I, when I say taking pictures of people, I think that there are a lot of those technical errors that you can – that you're going to be able to fix and that we still fix. Like when I take pictures of a group of people, I um, – I typically say, okay, smile, and then I just hold down the, the button and fire off like 50 photos. You know, maybe mm-hmm. not 50, but I fire off at least 15 or 20 in the, in, in the zone of right before I say smile or, you know, three, two, and then I just start firing. And I'll just sit there and fire a whole slew of photos. And typically, if I can, I'll put it on a tripod, but otherwise I just sit real still and grab them all because I know that I can go back very easily. And, 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 and now there's tools that will automatically go back and grab the best faces <laughs> i mean because that used to be a nightmare you have 30 people and you can't get everybody to smile at the same time you're not trying to you, you know you're, we're not we're not submitting this to reuters and we're not uh submitting what this. tools do you use to to do the best faces uh photoshop uh, elements does it now you know that'll let you just take a whole bunch of images and and uh, replace the faces you can just scroll through the faces i haven't used it that much because i have to admit that i can do it by hand so quickly that yeah see it i usually do it by hand but the question is if somebody the problem that i have is if you have a big group if one person moves slightly mm-hmm. then like their face is not the same angle anymore does it yeah, recognize that it, like it fixes it anyway? you can you can I still will. I mean, they're, 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 yeah. What you're looking for is everyone smiling, and, and definitely people are jostling around. It's, it's much harder. But typically, yeah, what's what you, up with that? What? Why don't they? Do, what's up with that? Why don't they just stay still? 
Well, yeah. usually if you get a group of in a second or two, they most of the time you're going to find people staying fairly still or, or, or stuff. And sometimes I've I've done ones where it's really important that I've and I've repainted. Um, <laughs> I, I've done one. I did one. I did one where there was a group of us that needed we needed for a PR photo, and I needed to be in it. And uh, so I took a picture of the whole group, and then I had someone else stand right where I was, and then I ran into the group standing behind people and had them take the picture again, and then I painted myself in. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the uh, because it was it was just for a it was it, that was actually for a, a uh, you know a, a PR photo that needed to be done. So the so um, yeah, but I, I think this is just another example of exactly the same thing that all of this sort of your your photographer is going to become the the capturer, and there may be a distinction between the person that captures data and the person that creates the image at the end. And most photographers are going to be that same person. But I don't think that's always going to be the case. And I think you're going to see scenarios where those two could be completely separate in, in the same way that, you know, on a film set, the DP gets the image. But, you know, the editor and the director and a whole bunch of visual effects artists are still the ones that produce the final image. And there's still um, even if even when you're able to shoot, um, you know, 60 photos a second, you know, or, or whatever, you know, the or, or 60 photos a minute or whatever, whatever's going on. 60 with some photos of these a second. Wow. I want that. Camera. Casio does that. Um, yeah, yeah. I believe it's. I think it's sixty frames a second. I, I believe it's sixty frames a second that it'll it'll capture. And what what happens is is it captures all of them, and then you can grab the one you like, you know. And so it's it's a little camera too. It's like a consumer yeah. camera that'll do that. And um, so uh, it'll buffer. It, it won't buffer for more than that. It's not like it'll do it for, you know, minutes. It'll it'll just give you a. You hit the button and it gives you. And some of them are will go back in time. So you hit the button and it gives you thirty frames before and thirty frames after you shot. Um, so that you can get just that moment that you wanted, and so so a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of these tools are getting to that point. But I, I still think that there's a certain level of angle magic. There's a magic in someone's eye uh, of grabbing some moment uh, that you still have to be there, and you have to be in the moment, and you're going to grab the way you angle the camera and the way you put it together. Over time, at some point in time, maybe we'll be able to grab lots of different angles all at the same time and reframe a photo reel uh, image from those. Uh, but I think that there is something. Uh, still, I mean, I know that there have been uh, photographers that are really good at landscape that I've gone out shooting with, and man, we are standing within ten feet of each other, and I have a snapshot, and they have something I can put on my wall, you know, and it's and that's a there's something there that you know that uh, that I don't have. I, I, I take I do better with people than uh, than than uh, landscapes, but there's something that they're grabbing, the way they look at the geometry, yeah, the way you know, and that's, that's going to still set those photographers apart. I don't think that. You know, that that kind of stuff of recreating the entire scene. I mean, it's one thing to re- recreate some rocks. It's another thing to recreate an entire landscape and be able to shoot it from many different angles. I mean, finding that right time and the right uh, quality of light. Maybe not quantity, but quantity of light I think we're going to solve pretty quickly. But quality of light and, um, and uh, you know, the effects that it has on an entire uh, landscape I think are going to be something that's going to take a little time to, to sort five, out. Five years. Five years and you'll be... Shooting almost dealing with almost everything in post processing. I'm going to say ten. I'm going to say ten. It could be ten. That's what's so interesting is you you know we talk about Ron. You were saying there's a distinction between capture and post, and it's it's fascinating in that there's the weight how the weight's changing. You know the artistry originally was during capture, and now as time goes, it becomes more and more post. And it I, I am interested to see how the industry moves and you you know you have photographers out there that are i'm all about shooting nothing you know i'm good at my craft i hand it off to other people to do the posts to you Mm -hmm. know like there's all those 
shoot dot edit. Like, oh, there's so many people out there, just companies that all they do is post. Well, and, and recreating pictures, recreating a scene, I think goes through this this uh, you know this process where you know for a long time there was no realistic version of the scene, and then you had in the Renaissance we started figuring out how to you know I mean arguably we started figuring out how to project people <laughs> onto the wall and um, and trace them, which is what a lot of that a lot of the very very realistic stuff is turning out. You know, there's theories that 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 technology or that process started and suddenly you start seeing it everywhere i'm not saying that all of those paintings are that way but the expectation of realism became much more apparent once the process of projecting people against the wall um became more uh in the you know hundreds of years ago so suddenly we we started changing the way we expected to do it and then you know you needed someone you needed a great painter to paint you if you wanted a photorealistic portrait and that started to change for the the for the uh for someone who didn't have quite that much money that started to change in, in the last century in the 19th century uh where you could get these photographs they weren't quite as high quality as a as a portrait but they were a lot less expensive and then there was some point where these photographs were a lot better than the painting you know and painters had to think of something else to do because <laughs> you know just just do i mean they you could still do portraits but they really that was not the booming business that it used to be because um you know and the people who started photography were technical I mean, this, this started as a technical field. I mean, they, it was very complicated to take photos. I mean, you look in the 1830s and 1840s. I mean, these guys were geeks. You know, they weren't. Yeah. You know, they, you know the guys who were taking pictures on, you know, on the Civil War battlefield were, they were very, very technical. I mean, obviously, they got some, you know, incredible photos and all, all the way through the 19th century. But they were, this was a very technical field of understanding how light worked and how much exposure they could have. And, you know, it was really a geek area. And then it got so easy that it could become an art. And now it's, you know, so I think that I think that you end up with this kind of rubber band of it just, you know, and I think that, you know, there's other artwork that can come out on the other end. So maybe it's not when you pull the trigger. But, you know, when I as, as an example, coming from Ron and I both come from visual effects. So it's a little one sided on this side. But the but the when I rendered, you know, I used to I rendered this big shiny ship for a for a for a big film and uh, not, I don't know, big film, but a film. And it it was very complex, the surface, and, and I had to render it differently. I rendered out 20 passes. I didn't even try to have my 3D package render it. I just rendered out a whole bunch of different looks, and then I brought it into my compositing package, and I just noodled with it. But that was still an artistic experience. You know, that was not a, you know, the, the thing to remember is, is that it's, it was still a very, you know, that was a very fluid, me figuring out the look that I wanted to have and, and how I wanted it to go. So it, it, just because that, that artistry, you know, creating a great look is still an art. It just made, it, it just it just moving the button of where that art occurs down the down the stream a little bit. And that's the point I was trying to make is that just you this is this is going to be more and more of a post process, but that doesn't mean that the skilled photographer isn't still going to be the one that's saying this is a pleasing photo. It just means that, you know, when when that pleasing photo is created may be delayed. But because it's delayed, you're gonna have more tools to get the vision that you've got in your head. So I don't I don't I know a lot of people hear this kind of stuff and they're afraid that it's going to kind of change uh, what a photographer is or does. And I don't really think that's the case. It's, it's still going to be your eye is going to be the determining factor in your vision, your internal vision of what the shot should be. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. And, yeah. And I, and I, you know, we, when I do trainings, when I talk about doing, doing a lot of these, um, whether it's visual effects or photography, you know, my argument is always that it's, you know, um, you know, 40 percent of of any image that comes out is is your eye for the other 40, uh, you know, only 20 percent is skill. 40 percent is eye 
and 40% is iteration. How many times do you get to do it? <laughs> How many times and, do you get to see it? And I think, you know, Catherine, you can talk to this too, because the other thing that you got to recognize about a lot of photography that involves people, like a lot of the stuff that you do, you know, your skill set is certainly as yeah, a photographer. Yeah, I'm kind of... Well, I was just going to say, but how much of what you do is really it's about interacting with people and getting them to do the things that you you need them to do to get the shot. Definitely. I mean, I feel like for, I mean, in a sense, if you compared advancements in technology, especially recent ones, they haven't had a ginormous impact on me because quite frankly, my greatest skill or characteristic that I could possibly have has nothing to do with technology. It has to do with what people feel like in front of my lens. So, and that's never, that won't change. Um, No, it won't. But I do have a question for you, Ron. So I, as these, as the industry changes and shifts and let's say post becomes more and more dominant, um, are, do you think photographers that are outsourcing, because there's this big movement outsource 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 do you think photographers that are outsourcing their post are going to be stifled because the creativity it's generic at that point yeah i do i totally do because now what you've done is you've i mean at at that point what you're saying is i'm now turning over the final image to let somebody else create it and yeah you know, I think what happens, what's going to happen, though, is it's going to be like any of these other processes, like making a movie, where ultimately, you know, the director retains the creative vision and still says at the end of it all, even if you're outsourcing something and you send it off to some other people to do the work, is you, you get a final approval on it. You get to say, I don't like what you did there. I want you to tweak this. You know, it becomes more of almost a business issue of can you maximize your particular skill set, which in this case is going to be the on, on-site getting the interaction with the bride and groom and everybody, um, take some of the stuff that you spend time on that is maybe not that much of an artistic endeavor, like just organizing and, and basic color correction, all that kind of stuff, but then still exert that control at the very end and, and have final approval and say, these are the ones I'm going to show to the client. I need to have this extra little bit of tweak done here. So I think ultimately you would still end up being the creative control over it in the same way that a director is over a movie. And again, it's it's your eye. I mean, that is your that is what is going to make the difference. It's not going to be someone being able to uh, move sliders around um, to to make all that work. I mean, they can get to a certain level, but the truly great uh, photographers and the truly great photographic artists, so to speak, um, are going to still be the eye is still so important. But that, that's that assuming that you are able to continue to exert that control over what the final images are. And I think that the thing you're talking about, Catherine, I'd be curious to hear sort of what you've, you've heard people doing, but some kind of a scenario where people just turn over the post completely and are done with it. I mean, is that actually happening that much? Or Yeah, I mean, that's sort of a huge movement in the wedding portrait world. I'd say wedding world most because you're shooting so much, you know. Mm-hmm. And people are just turning over, um, just sending it off. Because how does that? So how does that work? Their life back. So is that what it is, though? I mean, you-, you know, that's the interesting thing. Like, I actually don't outsource, um, and the reason being, I mean, all the final product, which for me is an, is I have. I mean, I do weddings and portraits, but for weddings, for example, is their album, and I'm the one that's retouching all of those photos. And if I ever brought someone in to help it would they would be in-house and i would be 
making sure that they're stylistically consistent to what I like. Um, but I only shoot 15 weddings a year. I mean, I limit, I don't ever take more than 15 clients. So that enables me to have that sort of control, but people that are shooting 40 or 50, it's sort of unrealistic at that point to be doing that customer care and, well, and I think that that's the other thing is that you have to decide uh, what What's is your business model. What is your business? Like, for instance, I, yeah. I um, in my business, uh, which is some, sometimes photography and sometimes a lot of other things, uh, I am my job is to deal with, you know, work with the clients, also develop pipeline, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, develop a pipeline, you know, to figure out how we're going to do stuff and how we're going to produce it. But once I got it figured out, then my job is to systemize it. And then once we figure that out, my job is to get other people to do it and, uh, and then oversee it until it's stable. And then my job is to not think about it anymore, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so, uh, you know, and, and stay out of the way. And we have, you know, whole business processes now that, that I don't see anything. I don't, you know, I, you know, we see checks, you know, based on <laughs> those things getting done and I don't have any interaction with them. And that's just, I think that's the efficiency of any sort of a person or organization that, that wants to grow to a certain size is you have to start finding things that other people can do that are maybe, you know, less in your area of expertise or interest uh, while still maximizing what you're really good at. So, I mean, I can certainly see a scenario, Catherine, where you would find somebody or even some company that is able to do certain things for you within a, to certain specs, but still lets you have as much creative control as you want. Now, it may not be easy to find such a, a person or company to do that with, but, you know, if, if you did, I, I would assume that that would be a good thing and you'd feel like it gave you more opportunity to focus on what you did best, right? What I would say is that you have to decide what you enjoy doing and what you're really good at doing and focus on doing those things. If you're really good at the whole pipeline, then focus on doing the whole pipeline. And if that means you're handcrafting something from the beginning to the end, from everything from talking to the client to shooting to post to outputting that, that photo album, and, and especially, Catherine, the way you're doing it where you're it's a very uh, you know deliberate process. You're doing 15 of these a, a year. You are um, you are presumably charging a fair amount for them, and and you are you know this is a work of art for you to put all, the whole process together. That's one business model. And if you enjoy every piece of that model, and you are really good at every piece of that model, then that makes sense. If you if there are parts that you don't enjoy doing or, or, or you think that, oh, someone else should you know, I can do something. That's when you start trying to figure out how do I fit something into a model that allows me to do more of the things that I like to do and less of the things I don't like to do. I mean, that's how I look at things. I mean, I look at it like I want to, I'm, I'm ADD, so I can just get bored easily. So if I did, if our company did, if I did the same thing in my company all the time, I'd be bored very quickly. So I can do it three or four times. And then, and then there's certain things that I like to do over and over again, but I don't want to do the other parts. And so I'm always trying to figure out how do we have other people, how do we include other people in the process so that I'm not doing those parts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess... Could... Well, I was just going to say, Catherine, you know, take a scenario where you come back and you got a whole, whole bunch of photos and, you know, your first thing you want to do is just tag everybody's, everybody's, you know, which people are in there. I mean, it seems like that's the kind of thing that's not exactly a creative endeavor. And if you could pass that off to somebody, and I know a lot of this is probably going to get automated, but something like that, wouldn't that make sense that you wouldn't spend two hours doing that if you could get somebody else to do it, you know, for a reasonable price and just turn that over to you? Well, I think that's the whole, I guess that's the point as, you know, your journey as a professional photographer is that finding what it is that you have to do because it's part of essential, the essential aspect of what you're selling um, and what is not. 
And so I guess that's the question is, is that post-processing, and I'm not, not talking about necessarily metadata, but um, is that part of what you're selling and can you do it better than, um, than outsourcing it? Not necessarily even better, but um, more stylist. If, is that part of your stylistic artistic expression is the post and figuring out who you are as a photographer. And if you, like Alex said, if you hate post, then you should definitely outsource. Well, and, and the other thing is, is to decide so, there are many things that inside of a budget, like when I have to look at the, I have to make decisions. It's not just what I love to do. Cause you know, I love to sit on set. There's nothing I like doing more than moving cameras around and shooting on, on set and everything else. It's just not a very efficient use of my time. So the issue that I have, I mean, I can't make a business doing that anymore. And so, um, and so I love doing that and I love having that opportunity. Um, what I have to look at is, uh, you know, there are a lot, many, what I, it took me a long time to learn <laughs> in production was that there are many things that the, the end product is actually better if I have someone else do it because I'm willing to make them do it rather than like when I look at having to do it, I have to look at all the other things that have to get done this week and all the other things that have to get done. And what is the budget and how does this work? And is this sustainable for our company? And I have to have, I have all these decisions that have to be made about how much time I spend on every given, uh, any given project. Uh, whereas if I'm paying someone to do it um, and, you know, I have a budget for that, I mean, obviously I still have to make that decision to some degree, but typically their hourly is less than mine if I'm, if I'm hiring them. And, um, uh, and the, the issue is, is that I'm oftentimes more particular when I have someone else doing it than, than I would be on my own sometimes uh, because, uh, because I, I'm, I'm not caught up with what it's going to take to get it done. I'm just caught up with, I just want it to look good and I want this to be fixed and I want this to be done over here and I want this. And so sometimes I'll push a lot harder than I would given my own time constraints, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It and it's still, it's still my, it's still my output <laughs> to some degree. And you see this in all kinds of art. I mean, I, I've seen stone sculptors who have a whole crew of people. So they say, I want the stone to be cut roughly this way. And then I, and then, and then I'm gonna have this other person clean it up to a certain level. It's, it's, it's the vision that that sculptor has, but he's having a whole bunch of people get it to a certain point And then he just finishes it. You know, it's, he has them do all the work that didn't, that isn't very technical. It just takes a week or two to do it of, you know, bone, bra- bone breaking work. And then he's putting his last, last little bit on to do the final little bits. And, uh, and so this happens in many different pieces of, you know, many different areas. Yeah, it's been happening since, you know, Renaissance artists and they had their uh, assistants painting half of the, half of the painting. So. Right. And the huge opportunity for people who are getting into the industry is working around. I mean, that's what I always tell people. And we've talked about this before is that we, uh, the best way to learn is to get around someone who knows more than you do. You know, that's why I'm hanging out with you guys today. <laughs> That's why I'm hanging out with you guys today. Oh, oh no, we've got the, it's, it's a whole inverted, you know. So, mm. uh, so anyway, we're going to jump into the news. I know we, 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 that was just kind of like a little conversation that we didn't have planned and we went off. I thought it was a great conversation, so I let it roll. And uh, we've got another, uh, but before we go to any of the news items, uh, what we're going to do is, is uh, thank uh, one of our sponsors. Uh, this, uh, you know, uh, this weekend photo is, of course, uh, sponsored by Carbonite. Uh, Carbonite, of course, is a safe, easy-to-use, automatic way to uh, back up your files in just a few clicks. Uh, you can, of course, get them from anywhere. So once they're on Carbonite, you can, uh, you know, you, you know, you can get, you have access to these uh, anywhere you go, and uh, and of course, they're getting, you're getting them off-site. So you know, you know, it's one thing to back them up. A lot of times, we talk about Drobo, we talk about a lot of those other, a lot of the other tools, and those are fantastic. And they're still in your house. And if you have a fire or you have uh, a 
um, you know, water damage or, you know, you have kids, <laughs> which is, uh, causes almost as much damage as fire and water damage oftentimes. Um, you, uh, you know, you need to have it backed up in the cloud. And so uh, getting it off and getting it into the cloud is extremely important. And, uh, and this is, uh, and Carbonite is one way to do that. So you can, um, you know, the, uh, it is just, you know, it's beyond, you know, hard drive failures and viruses. These are, this is a way to protect your PC or Mac. It's $59 a year. So six, 16 cents a, a day is all it takes to uh, back up your PC or Mac. And, of course, you can try it for free with the offer, offer code TWIP. That's T-W-I-P. So uh, you don't need a credit card. You can just sign up for two months for free. So you can see – you don't have to believe me. You can just see how, how easy or, or hard it is. You're going to find it's pretty easy. Uh, to go up to Carbonite.com, uh, put in your coupon code of TWIP, and start backing up your computer and uh, getting the most important files. I, I, now, I will say I don't put, put my whole computer up there. I shoot a lot of images and a lot of video. But I do make sure – that my uh, that my uh, most important images, my most important projects, my most important files are on, in the cloud. Uh, it is it is just really important to make sure that if the worst came to worst, I, I still have those photos. And if you're a photographer, you know this is this could be your business. Uh, and if it, and if you're a hobbyist, this is you know oftentimes some of your most precious memories. So make sure to not have them just sitting on your hard drive, not having just just sitting in your house, but somewhere on the cloud. And uh, give Carbonite a try for two months. It's Carbonite.com slash I'm sorry, Carbonite.com, and use the offer code TWIP. All right, and so now back to our, uh, we're going to skip the first one here. We're going to go to story two, uh, controlling your DSLR. I like the first one. I know, I know. I want to get out. It's just, which, that's going to be a deep, that's going to be a deep conversation. Which one, the um, uh, crowd? Oh, no, no, no. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, uh, um, uh, yeah I, I, I'm, I'm going to, uh, anyway, so we're going to, we're talking about controlling your, we, we, we just talked about a lot of philosophy, so we're going to come back, well, I got philosophy related to uh technical but have you guys seen have ron have you seen any of this uh controlling your dslr with your android uh yeah you know i think we've all we've all talked about this is obviously coming and having some sort of phone computer based interface to your camera is just so clearly where this is eventually going to go uh you know i look at this and mostly say gosh i wish it was running on an iphone um but yeah, it, it just makes total sense to me that this there's going to be this decoupling of your some sort of device for controlling the camera and the camera itself, and this looks like it's just one more step along that path. Yeah, we've been getting you know we have been uh, uh, I, I just you know I feel like you're going to need Bluetooth or Wi-Fi you know access for these camera these cameras. I mean, I think I, it's fine. Uh, I think this is exciting for for us to see a direct connection. I mean, I think that the uh, some people have been asking about the on one version, uh, but you're still connecting. You still have to connect a computer to the to the uh, to the camera uh, to control it wirelessly. And so having this tethering is 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 um, a bit chafy. Hey, hey, Catherine, do you do you shoot when you do portraits in the studio? Are you shooting tethered typically? Well, most of my stuff's location. So I, I mean, I will tether if I'm doing like a editorial or a commercial shoot where mm-hmm. I have art directors that need to see the images. Um, however, if it's just, you know, me and a client, then I won't. Um, you know, my whole take on this is I I, I can't be bothered. Right. <laughs> if there's more cords involved, like Alex said, if, if it was wireless, then it might pay attention to what's going on. But, the, I mean, we have so many cords and gadgets and things. Like, if it's not seriously going to improve my workflow um or my shooting in some way shape or form 
then if it's just another chord, that's, I just don't see that the function is great right. enough it, it, to it, add it, more chords. Yeah. And I guess I, what I'm more curious about is sort of, do you, if you had a scenario that was not technically a pain in the butt, uh, where you could sort of get out from behind the camera and have a more of a face-to-face interaction with the person you're shooting, is that, you know, do, do you feel that would be an advantage or not? Or is it the kind of thing where you already step out from, you know, you sort of frame up and then get out from behind it if you want them to look you in the eyes or sort of where's that trade off for you? Well, for me, I actually find that it's important to engage with the way that I shoot is I engage with my subjects the entire time. So I'm talking to them. So it would actually be a disadvantage to me if I were not behind the camera mm-hmm. yep. because they would be kind of looking off talking to someone elsewhere, which might be a little weird. Right. Um, It's not that they're staring at me and talking at me the whole time by any means, but um, for my type of portraiture, which I really, my style is is a bit more intimate, um, then I feel like that engagement with the lens is is a part of that style. So I wouldn't necessarily do that. With that said, other people have other styles, and I definitely see that for some people, this could be really nice, you know, getting away from the camera. But I, I'm not trying to. Hopefully, this doesn't sound bad, but I, I don't see it being like revolutionary different than just a cable release button. Like well, I, you know, <laughs> in its in its in its in its most basic form, when you're when you're yeah. talking about just taking a photo, that's one thing. But really, all this tethering really opens up as taking over the camera. So being able to shoot again. <laughs> Taking us back to the technical, being able to shoot multiple exposures, multiple um, focus ranges, multiple like in, in doing that automatically, uh, you know, just being able to fire it is not as interesting. But being able to to do a you know take over your your camera's functions in a way that you know the interfaces, in my opinion, I mean it's fine if you're just taking photos, but the interfaces and in cameras is you know near useless from a technical perspective. And uh, so what you want is a, a nice you want to be able to design interfaces to be able to control the camera the way you want to control it. This is, I think this is going to be really the future of these cameras is not going to be, you know, it's, it's figuring out how to integrate with Android, how to integrate with iPhone. Um, and we've talked in the show earlier about, I mean, in other episodes about sliding the iPhone into the camera, but minimum is, is being able to find a way that you can really interact fluidly and, and allow developers to find ways to control those cameras. And I think that the, the companies that start to do that, I think are going to start, you know, I think Nikon or Canon in the way that Canon's pulled way ahead because they do video. Uh, I think that there's a, a lot of growth opportunity for a company that figures out that they, they shouldn't be designing those things. When we talk about what, what they're good at, they're really good at making sensors and stuff like that, and none of these camera companies are good at making interfaces. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think that basically what it comes down to is, is, is there a need for it? And so I guess the reason why it's not that attractive to me is I don't, you know, if you offered this to me and said, hey, you can do this, I don't know that it would really improve my experience as a shooter and my photographs that much. Um, With that said, that's me with a specific type of photographer and a specific style. So I think, and I also think I'm comfortable, like I've been doing this for a long time and I, I think that's part of it. I wouldn't say it's fear of doing something differently, but I've learned how to get out of people what I want of out of them Right. Yeah. With a camera right in front of my face. And it would almost be taking me out of my element in a sense. And, mm-hmm. you know, it. I don't know that it would maybe, maybe it would be better. Maybe I should try that. I have no idea. But 
I've learned how to do it so well, holding the camera in my hand and talking to my subjects right. that it seems weird to to try to do something different just because there's a technology that would allow me to. Yeah, and you know, I think the bottom line too is for for the kind of you know the kind of thing you're talking about here, you basically can control the camera by touch, right? You 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 know where the buttons are, and you can do a lot of adjustments without having to look at what your fingers are doing. And there is a disadvantage yeah, moving this all to a touch screen where, you know, you suddenly have to be down, looking down at it and knowing where your fingers are as opposed to your, your finger knowing it as the dial right here and the other button's right here. So uh, it's certainly not a panacea for making it a better shooting experience. You know, I kind of look at it as there would be times where it would be really handy, and most of the photography I do is just while I travel. But, you know, there's times where I'm like, man, if I could only be you know, a foot taller, or if I could hold the camera just up three feet above my head or as far up as I can reach, but still see what I was framing, you know, things like that. Or if I really wanted to get a really low shot, but I don't feel like getting down on my hands and knees in the mud, you know, having some place where I could still see what's on, what the camera's seeing, but not necessarily have that be attached to the camera itself. That's the kind of situation where I would see value to it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So uh, we have a we have an interview uh, coming up here, Frederick. Uh, so Frederick is not with us today, but he is virtually. Um, he uh, recently had a chance to chat to chat with Ren Ng and Eric Chen Cheng, uh, who are the CEO and director of photography at Lightro. Uh, you may have uh, heard of the company that's developing the new camera sensor that will let users adjust the depth of field in images and even video after the capture, which is very. Apropos for this conversation, because <laughs> we keep on talking about these uh, these extra pieces here. So let's have uh, let's listen to Ren and Eric tell us about how this technology works and what it could mean for the future of digital photography and cinematography. Okay, I'm here with Ren Ng. He's the CEO of Lytro, and Eric Chang. He's the director of photography for the company, and they both agree to to sit down with me virtually and uh, sort of talk through the technology. Now, we've talked about the, this particular technology on This Week in Photography before, um, and we sort of just talked about it from the standpoint of what is it and what could it mean for users and stopped right there because we are novices, but we're lucky enough to have the folks that built it and are on the ground floor with the technology uh, explain it to us. So, uh, Ren, Eric, thank you for, for taking the time today. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, this is awesome. Okay, so uh, let's start off. Uh, Ren, I'll direct this first question to you. What is Lytro? Uh, Lytro is um, uh, developing the next big thing in cameras. Uh, we're developing an amazing new kind of camera for the consumer market. Uh, and what we're doing is bringing light field technology, that's our core innovation, uh, we're bringing light field technology uh, to um, the world, bringing it out, out of academia and making it available for everyone in the form of this first uh, consumer light field camera. Okay. So when, when you say light field, uh, when, when I hear the word field, I think depth of field. So can you, can you explain what that technology is and how it maybe might relate to depth of field? Yeah, uh, uh, definitely. There are relationships to depth of field in uh, how you can refocus pictures after the fact, which uh, I, I know you've seen, Frederick, and perhaps some of your listeners have seen on Lightray.com. Uh, but refocusing is one of the features and capabilities that stem from the light field technology. And in that respect, light fields are much broader. So light fields are uh, something that uh, were introduced at Stanford in the mid-1990s by two professors and has proven one of the most uh, influential ideas in the field. Uh, I worked on it for my PhD uh, with those two professors on how to incorporate light field technology into cameras. 
um, because I, I, I'm a big photographer myself and I've loved taking pictures for uh, my whole life. Uh, and what the light field itself is defined as is the amount of light, uh, so all the light traveling in every direction uh, at every point in space. And if you think about the light field flowing inside the camera, I think you can get a visual of all the individual rays flowing in every direction at every point in space uh, within the camera body, which of course come in through the lens. Yeah. And that information is um, uh, what's recorded by a Lytro camera, a light field camera, and most of that information is lost uh, in regular photos because regular photos don't tell the whole story. Yeah, regular photo, it, correct me if I'm wrong, regular photo is going to, or a regular camera is going to capture one plane, right, at one time based on what the depth of field is and what the shutter speed is and ISO, all that stuff. Um, what I'm hearing from you, and correct me if I'm wrong, is this sort of reminds me of when I was playing around with 3D a little bit, and there's a, there's a term in 3D rendering called ray tracing where it traces, the, the software traces every little potential ray of light and where it bounces to and how it reflects off of surfaces and all that stuff. Is this similar to that? There's a very strong relationship. Yeah, you're exactly right. Ray tracing is, um, in the computer graphics community, uh, you know, it's how we understand how to simulate light the most accurately in order to produce the most convincing special effects, you know, for our games, for movies. And, and computer graphics is really, really good at, at that these days. I did my PhD in the computer graphics uh, lab at Stanford. Uh, and uh, in some sense, what you can think of this as is taking uh, light field technology, sorry, taking the best of computer graphics uh, and ray tracing and applying that to the design of cameras uh, and the design of how we uh, process, you know, the kind of data that we could collect from uh, a new type of camera, a light field camera. Okay, so then let's let's step into excuse me into computational photography now. From our friends at Adobe and other companies, we've been hearing this term, photographers have been hearing this term a lot over the last several years, computational photography. It's sort of doing all this magic in the computer that you can't do in your camera. Can you define, just from, a, from your standpoint, what is computational photography and what, is it, what does it mean for you know, the, the, the working pro? Yeah, uh, I think at the broadest scale, I think the way you described it was great, you know, applying... Uh, computers to be able to make photography, make imaging um, more powerful, m make it a better experience. Uh, when you think about how to use the uh, you know, computation to change the camera or change what we can do with pictures, there's many different directions you can go. What Lytro is doing at uh, this juncture is going right down to the physical layer. And what I mean by that is if you consider all the information about the light that flows into your camera and what a photo gives you, it turns out that the photo really doesn't give you, uh, you know, really uh, um, uh, deletes a lot of the critical information. For example, the information about how that enables you to focus a picture after you take it. Yeah. So if we record that missing information, the second step is applying computation to form pictures from the light field, which is completing the physical functions of a conventional camera, of a conventional lens. We're doing that physical work now in software. And if you think about turning physical functions uh, into software, that's a very powerful transformation yeah. because now you can break all the physical rules and you get things that are impossible just with the, the regular physics of image formation. And if you're if you're looking at a if you're looking at a scene like so, I'm imagining a scene of you know, say you're looking at a city scene. You know, it's a it's a you're in a park. Say you're in Central Park in New York, and you want to capture the people in the foreground, the greenery in the background, the trees in the in the 
farther back and then the skyline back behind that. Um, when I think about that, I think in planes. As a photographer, I'm thinking in planes or in depth of field. So the people in the foreground are on one plane. And if I focus on that plane, everything behind it is lost to me. So how I'm trying to get my brain around how physically, without you know breaking the laws of physics, are you able to focus on more than one point at a time? Is it in the lens element? Do you have multiple lens elements that are capturing these different planes, or how does that work? Uh, great question. The difference uh, for us is uh, built into the sensor. So we replace the regular image sensor in a camera uh, with um, this very innovative new kind of sensor called the light field sensor. Mm-hmm. And uh, just as you described, you know, photographing uh, that scene of a cityscape with some trees in the foreground and some other, you know, stuff uh, behind it. If you focus on the trees, then well, uh, think of the light flowing from that scene into the lens. The same light is flowing into the lens, but depending on how the lens was configured relative to the sensor, a different uh, uh, focused image would appear on the sensor, right? Either focus on the trees or in the background. But the same light is coming into the front of the lens. What's lost in the conventional camera is how much light was going each direction, each ray, uh, which, you know, uh, what its trajectory, vector trajectory was as it struck the sensor surface. Um, Because in the regular camera, Every pixel will add up light coming to that pixel location on the sensor from many different directions. Add it all up, give you one color, and lose the um, you know this vector information. Mm-hmm. And in a light field camera and the light field sensor, we preserve that directional information, and we use that in the computation to then simulate what would have happened if the lens had actually been configured so that it was focused on the background instead of the foreground. And we have the data to uh, make that picture uh, with high fidelity. That is a lot of math going on there. I, my, my brain is about to explode with how much math is going on there. So There's the- a lot of math under the hood, um, but the result for, um, uh, uh, you know, for the experience that we would like people to really uh, enjoy and play around with, especially uh, photographers, uh, is to be able to make a picture that has an interaction to it that's so natural and simple, uh, clicking to see where, you know, what you want um, to, to focus the picture after the fact. Uh, that I think folks will find really fun and uh, easy to use. Okay, so then let me let me geek out a little bit. Um, I'm sure you remember. I don't know, and, and, and even now, you know, there was there was this concept of doing virtual photography or, or VRs, like QuickTime VRs, and there are other technologies out there that let you do sort of this. Uh, panorama of, of of still imagery that you can sort of look around in three dimensions, up, down, left, and right, and spin around and sort of have this immersive experience. Is there, do you foresee a way in the future for Lytro technology to be incorporated with that kind of technology so that we can look at multiple planes within a sort of sphere of imagery? Yeah, uh, definitely. With uh, VR techniques like you're talking about, or panoramas, or which are you know all closely related, essentially we're using you know many pictures at you know pointed in different directions and stitching them together to form a, a continuous large field of view. Um, and yeah, absolutely, that will be compatible with uh, with light field cameras. That's amazing. So then, I guess a, a logical question that that would follow that is, what about video? You know, I'm shooting stills, and I love stills, but all the rage right now is these DSLRs that can shoot video as well. Wouldn't it be great to be able to to shoot a large amount of video footage and then change the focus points in that shot after the fact? You, do you foresee yeah. that coming? 
Yeah, definitely. The technology is fully compatible with video. The architecture fully supports it because light field technology, the way that Lytro is doing it, is not about taking many pictures uh, and stitching them together to form the light field. Just historically, it's important to note that that was how light fields were originally captured back in the mid-1990s and even uh, much later uh, research cameras at Stanford and in the computer graphics community, literally in a room full of cameras, uh, capturing lots of pictures and then uh, computing, uh, using computing to stitch them together to get a light field. And that uh, um, can introduce challenges with respect to getting it to work for things like consumer video. At Lytro, it's a single camera, single lens, single shot, and every shot, which is a regular exposure duration, uh, forms a full light field. So do that at video rate, and you can uh, uh, collect the data from which to do light field video. That said, our first product is going to be focused on still, and uh, uh, light field video is in our product roadmap. If you think about the implications of uh, light fields for video, I think your mind was going in you know, exactly the right direction. It allows you to focus after the fact, which is impossible. I mean, it, it's it's um, completely impossible for uh, regular for consumer video yeah. because folks don't have a script, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you don't know who's going to start talking next or who's going to do something interesting until it's already started happening and your focus is in the wrong place. That's very different than in the movies, which we're all familiar with, right, where they have perfect focus because they have a script and they have... Uh, somebody, the first camera assistant, whose only job it is to get the focus in the right place according to the script, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and if you imagine doing that, but in consumer uh, uh, video, the promise is to be able to bring cinema quality to um, to consumers for the first time. So then, so that's that is amazing. Um, and when I when I'm thinking of that, I'm thinking, wow, okay, these high end, ultra expensive cameras will 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 manifest with this Lytro technology and, you know, the average Joe that is scraping up to buy his DSLR will one day dream of owning a camera with the Lytro technology in it. Um, is that the case or are you aiming lower for the folks that are buying point and shoots and maybe even camera phones? Uh, the, this technology is definitely uh, put into a package that's going to be very accessible to a broad, uh, you know, broad population. The goal is not to bring it, you know, out of academia and out of these complex um, uh, research systems to make it available just for a niche part of the market or for specialized applications, but rather to bring it into the place where everyday people who are trying to take pictures to share with their friends and family and share, you know, visual stories of their lives in, uh, in new, exciting uh, ways that can make our lives visually richer. Uh, that's who this is targeted for. So the product will be out later this year at a competitive price uh, for consumer cameras. That's amazing. I'm looking forward to it. And, uh, Rin, I know you have another appointment to run to right now. I thought I would use this as an opportunity to let you escape and then direct questions at Eric um, regarding the sort of uh, actual real-world use situations for photographers. Thanks very much for having me on the show. And um, yeah, I'll just step out right now. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Thank you. So, Eric, when you when you look at this technology, so you're, again, the director of photography for Lytro. And when you look at this technology and you actually use it in a real-world situation, what does it feel like? So if you're you're one of the, if not the only, like, person on the world that, that has played with this, what what's a, a – can you compare and contrast a shoot with a Lytro camera versus a shoot with a traditional DSLR? Um, <clears throat> yeah, sure. Um so I, I've been a, a professional or had been a professional photographer now for about eight years after stepping out of a, a technology role 
um, uh, prior to that, and I, I actually I never never thought I'd come back. But yeah. uh, Lightfield, you know, Lightfield technology was was so compelling that I was really forced to. You know, I had no choice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, so I did come from a world where I was using high-end SLRs all the time. Um, but I also uh, kept point-and-shoots around uh, for different reasons because uh, sometimes um, you just need to be ready and you don't always have an SLR in your pocket. Yeah. Um, and so in some ways, you know, this comparison um, with, a, with an SLR, um, I mean, I think it's a valid comparison, but, um, you know, we, we, are, we are targeting... Um, not just people who shoot SLRs, but people who are who are shooting with camera phones and point and shoots, and and just you know we're looking for people who want to share stories visually in another way, and are looking for what may potentially become the dominant form um, of of interacting with imagery in the future. Um, and so you know the, the things that are different when shooting with a Lytro um, prototype, and you know that's pretty much all we have now are prototypes. Um, and then I'm I'm really focused on um, on storytelling more than a lot of the technical um, aspects of photography that I'm that are normally you know really in my fingers yeah. uh, in an SLR. And so I mean the, the example that I've, I've uh, that sticks out most in my mind is, is photographing a friend's baby on a swing. Um, and some of these pictures are actually up on our website at Lytra.com right now. Um, but this was you know a young baby, a year and a half old swinging uh, uh, on, a, on a swing, kind of coming within six inches of me and then uh, moving backwards maybe five or six feet away um, in, you know, in rapid succession with each swing. And that would be a very difficult picture to capture with any camera, you know, even if it were an SLR with a very fast focus. And what I was focused on uh, was capturing the moments when, when she was smiling and you know, when, when the light was hitting her face in the right way. And, uh, and I wasn't really thinking about focus, knowing that um, it was something that I could uh, I could choose uh, yeah. after the fact. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it, it's amazing and boggling how it will shift the the way that photographers perceive scenes and even every every kind of photography, I mean, whether it's a model shoot down to a wedding shoot or whatever. You know, it just gives a photographer an amazing suite of tools to be able to make decisions later rather than have to think on their feet and do them. You know, think of all the stuff the technical aspects of the image at the time of capture. So, so that said, um, you know, looking at this from a, from the, the standpoint of, okay, so the, this is a brand new sort of area from the hardware to the software. Does that mean that, that photographers are going to need to go out and buy brand new software to manipulate these images or change them? Or is this, is this a case where there'll be a Lytro plugin for say a Photoshop or how do you see that manifesting? Um, well, certainly with the initial launch of our camera, um, we will be bundling software that can read the file format, which is um, sort of by definition proprietary since nothing like this has existed in the past. Yeah. Um, so we will have uh, a desktop uh, application, um, you know, something that, that can read this, uh, this new file format and, and um, generate images from it. Um, and uh, it will also be really easy to, to share online. Um, of course, you know we we think that this is just the beginning of a new category of cameras, of light field cameras, and so we you know we certainly do expect there to be um, uh, plugins for for popular editors and um, and other types of third-party software support. Um, but it's really hard to say at this point what form those plugins or or software packages will take. Right, right. 
So, so switching to more of the sort of, uh, I don't know, political, philosophical sort of um, perspective on the technology. We, on, this week in photo, on This Week in Photo, we talk a lot about, um, like, what is true. Like, if you have an image, like, back in the old days, it was you could shoot film and you could tell if the negative had been retouched, right? And then we <laughs> right. fast forward to now, um, you know, or the current state of technology, pre-Lytro technology, it's digital, where there is no truth. You can't tell what's been man- manipulated. So you, Adobe and other folks have come out with ways to watermark images so that you can tell that this image has been altered if it's being used for, say, court proceedings or something like that. Um, right. When we fast forward to Lytro technology, where we're shifting a lot of the weight from optics over to computation in the computer, is there a way for, for or will there be a way for folks to, if need be, uh, authenticate an image as being not touched? Well, I think the, the sort of digital watermarking um, that that happens in traditional cameras. Um, uh, actually, I haven't really seen that many people use it, although I know that it's... Yeah, me it, either. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, those those techniques could certainly be carried over into this realm, although I'm not, again, I'm not sure what form they would take. Um, it, it's funny, you know, we are shifting a lot of image creation into software, uh, into computational photography, into that realm. Um, but the light field is actually much more complicated than what a traditional 2D camera might record. So it's actually much harder to manipulate. Um, and so, you know, in, in that way, I, I think, you know, if you did any sort of manipulation to the light field, it, it would probably be pretty easy to tell, at least, for, you know, in the near future before more sophisticated editing tools um, uh, come out of the market. Yeah, yeah. So when we when we talked we talked a little bit with uh, with Ren about form factor and and what the potential form factors might be um, is I'm just trying to get my brain around the 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 hardware versus the software side of this is this a is this a marriage of hardware Lytro is it a marriage of hardware and software meaning um, the software by itself or the algorithms the Lytro algorithms or the light field algorithms can cannot exist and be and work without the hardware side and vice versa? Or in other words, will we see, say, a Nikon come out with a Lytro camera, you know, without getting into licensing and all that stuff? But, you know, is is that possible? Um, I, well, I certainly wouldn't rule it out for a long-term future, but um, it is it is actually a marriage of hardware and software, but um, it's still divided in that there's very much capture of the light field and then post-processing of the light field. So just like a, a traditional camera has a raw image that has to be converted into a traditional image that we can see, you know, we will have a raw light field capture um, along with some software package that exists to let you see the images you're taking. And of course, some of that software will exist on the camera so that you can preview images um, in some way, uh, and the rest of it will live uh, you know, in, in software on, on computers. Yeah. Um, so, so the, you know, there's no fundamental reason the, the capture and processing um, workflow can't be broken up like it is now in other applications. Now, Eric, do you see this as a, a fundamental addition to, the, to just general photography? For example, you know, back when they, when, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm reaching here, but back when they discovered shutter speed, you know, and it changed the way the photography forever, that how all cameras render images, you know, because you can adjust the shutter or you can go up to these high ISO or high shutter speeds on some of the new cameras. 
that sort of fundamental DNA level change in the art of photography. Do you see Lytro as being a technology that has the potential to impact photographers' lives from that level? Uh, absolutely. And, and that was really what drew me to the company um, to begin with. You know, I saw really the potential for a fundamental shift in the way images are captured. I mean, there's, there's, nothing, um, there's nothing fundamental to this technology that, uh, that would, um, that's incompatible with the way traditional imaging works in that, you know, anywhere there's an image sensor now, you know, you could replace that image sensor with a light field sensor and um, sort of unlock all of this, this power that light field uh, gives you. Um, and, of course, it's, it's going to be um, potentially a long road to that point because, you know, all of the, these sort of disruptive shifts uh, certainly take time. And if you imagine, you know, the first digital cameras that came out, I mean, to some people they were clearly the evolution of photography. You know, we, we, you could see that things were going that direction. But, of course, others fought against it bitterly, right? And we all saw that during the film to digital transition. And I see this transition as potentially being as disruptive as that one was. Yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe even more so because the, you know, the shift to digital um, was a shift in capture side, but it was still fundamentally based in the same principles, um, whereas you know, this is the first time the principles of capture have really been changed. Yeah, and when, when I think about that, I think about there, there's been a lot of companies that, or you know, maybe not that many, but, uh, but several companies that have been squarely focused on imaging for decades. I mean, we're looking at Kodak, we're looking at Canon, Nikon, Sony, Pentax, all these guys have presumably have really large R&D departments that are looking at different ways to make our lives, photographers' lives, easier. Why now? And why haven't they come up with a light field camera and you guys are able to sort of hand them their lunch? <laughs> um, well, I, I think that's, that's a very interesting, um, very interesting question. And I think in, in some ways it's because they're so deeply embedded in, in the way traditional imaging has worked that um, it's very difficult to do anything other than come out with incremental updates. I mean, you have, you know, more pixels uh, until lately. Now we have fewer pixels in some cameras and, you know, different modes to help people take pictures. And, um, but since, you know, it's all sort of fundamentally based in the same technology, which has gotten very, very good. I mean, you know, all you have to do is go out on any image sharing site to see how high the caliber of, Im you know, of image capture is these days. Um, uh, but, you know, but I think this, this technology um, is, is very, very difficult as well. I mean, you know, the, the majority of our engineers working in image quality are PhDs in computer graphics, and they speak a language that almost nobody understands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they live in the matrix, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, re it really feels like that. And, um, and I'm, I mean, the, the, the caliber of the engineering department here is, is really incredible. Um, and so, it, you know, it's a combination of, of having very few people who fundamentally understand this, this technology to begin with. I mean, there just aren't that many people on the planet who, who understand this, you know, even though Ren's dissertation is linked to it from our website, you know, anyone can go download it and read it, but it is still very difficult um, to then um, carry out the rest of the processes necessary to make a camera. And, you know, we're very much bringing a Silicon Valley ethos to the process, which which hasn't really existed in other, uh, in the, you know, the entrenched camera companies who, um, you know, are, are sort of very large and, and it came about at a time before this sort of startup culture existed. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, 
That's a perfect way of putting it. So then, you know, we'll, we'll close it off with what's next. You know, I'm, I'm sure photographers are sitting on the edge of their seats. They're like, okay, enough. It's great. I love it. I, I'm a believer. I want to get my hands on this thing. When, when can they get their hands on it? Well, I, I, you know, I actually, um, I feel that frustration. <laughs> we see it <laughs> in all the social media that we're a part of. Um, but it, it's also really funny how fast timetables have become and, and how how expectation has changed. I mean, Lytro announced itself to the public a month and a half ago. And that is, you know, if you look at any camera company, that is basically no time, right? A month and a half is, is nothing, but people are already already very kind of excited and they want to see what's coming out next. Um, we, uh, we've, we've stated publicly that we're going to be launching a camera before the end of the year, and uh, we're on track to do that. Um, and so I guess all I can say is, is uh, stay tuned, and you know we'll we'll certainly be um, uh, very vocal about this camera when when it's ready. And we'll we'll definitely talk about it as well. Where uh, where can people go to be notified when the camera hits, or do they just keep their eyes on their Twitter feeds, or how does that work? Um, uh, on the front page of Lightroom.com, we have a, a sign up for um, pre notification, um, which is uh, the, the same way you get on. Um, it's it's really it's a kind of an early notification reservations list, mm-hmm. um, and we're also on Twitter and Facebook and and um, are pretty easy to find. Uh, but the best way is to go to lightro.com and uh, just to give us your email address there. Awesome. Well, yeah, Eric, thank you uh, both you and Ren uh, for taking the time out today to to sort of demystify this technology and let us lift the hood a little bit. Um, you know, my brain is still scrambled as to how, how the technology works, but I feel a little more comfortable knowing that, you know, you guys um, are some pretty smart cookies behind building this thing, and I'm really excited to, to actually play with it and snap some pictures with it. So congratulations and thank you. Thanks, Frederick. We are we're excited to uh, to get your camera when it comes out as well. And that was Renning and Eric Cheng uh, from Lightro uh, telling us about their Lightfield technology. To learn more about their work, you can go to Lightro. That's L Y T R O dot com. And so, or you can go to blog com or facebook dot com slash Lightro. So all those are the ways that you can find out more about that. And we've got some uh, we've got some. Uh, listener Q&A coming up here. But before we get to that, we're just going to thank our other sponsor, Squarespace. Of course, uh, you know, Squarespace is just the fast and easy way to... We're really in a fast and easy uh, this in this episode. Uh, we have um, uh, Carbonite is easy to back your stuff up, and Squarespace is just a really fast and easy way to uh, uh, create a uh, high-quality website or blog. And so here's the deal. You, you, you're a photographer, and you want to put up your website. I mean, you really need a website to talk about what you do. And you don't want to figure out how to do any HTML coding. You don't want to figure out how to install a blog onto a server. You don't want to figure out any of those things, and you don't have to. You can just use Squarespace. So it's, you have an easy-to-use UI where you can just simply manage. You can manage the entire blog, design the entire blog, put everything together without any HTML, without any CSS. You're simply, it's all WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. You drag it around. You say, this is what I want it to look like. Of course, there's a, a ton of, hundreds of design templates that you can choose from. And you can just build it all out. And there's iPhone and iPad apps so that you can update your blog from anywhere. And, of course, they have tons of – one of the great things about Squarespace, by the way, is that they have great resources. When we ask for, you know, when, when, when we ask for help, and they don't know who we are. I mean, they don't know that – the folks that we ask for service don't know don't, – <laughs> don't have no idea what marketing is doing. And we ask for help for our – so DV Garage and Pixel Core and my own blog, which is bordersack.com. 
those are all built in Squarespace with different levels. Like DV Garage and, and Pixelcore both have custom CSS and e-commerce. Mine was built in four hours, you know, a long time ago, thinking, oh, I'll get back to doing something else. But it was fine. Um, and, of course, there's a blog module, for form builders. And whenever we need help, we you know, you call and someone calls right back or emails and someone really is – they're great about that. And also you don't have to worry about it crashing if you end up on a – you know, you, you end up getting a lot of attention – uh, or you know, this is in the cloud. It's a cloud. It's a it's a it's a website as a service. So um, so it's definitely the way to go. You can handle permissions. You you know you can handle all of those things that you would normally do uh, with a with a uh, blog, uh, and uh, you can of course do this all inside of Squarespace. So you can sign up for a free account. You don't need a credit card. Uh, you don't need. You can just try it out by and start building your own website. If you go up to squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP8, um, so uh, so you can um, sign up for a free account. Again, TWIP8, and you get 10% off um, the first six months. So uh, it's definitely uh, worth it. But you don't need to do anything other than just going there and, uh, and figuring it out. So uh, just try to build your own. You don't need to believe us. You don't need to, you don't need to believe me. Uh, you can simply um, uh, go up to Squarespace and figure it out and, uh, and see if it's something. I think you're going to find that it's easy to put together. And before you know it, you've got your own site. Of course, you can create your own URL and, and redirect it to there as well. It'll start off as Squarespace dot whatever, but you can customize that yourself. So check it out, squarespace.com. And now we've got some questions here. Uh, question number one, Mark Cole was at a carnival practicing his shooting when an angry parent confronted him for taking photos of their child on the, on the ride. Uh, Mark's understanding was is that he is in the clear since it's a public event. Uh, any suggestions on, on how to handle this kind of situation? Uh, what are Mark's legal rights? Um, and I think that those are two separate questions that are independent mm-hmm. of each other. Uh, you know, is, is that what, you know, what are the suggestions of handling it and what are your legal rights? Because legally, I think you, you, you know, you're in a public, now it's different, by the way, if you go to a, uh, if you're at a, like Disney World or Kennywood, I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh, so I'll say Kennywood. If you're at, you know, or, or Six Flags or whatever, those are, those are going to be different because those are private locations. But a carnival is in a public location. Ron, is there? What are the legal versus uh, suggested ways of handling this? Well, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, you know, I think technically, yes, he has a legal right to do this sort of thing. I think all of us have done this sort of deal, where you're wandering around some interesting public place, and there's a lot of people around, and you know, and there's probably kids somewhere, and you could take a photo, and it's the kids are in the picture, and. I, uh, sure, I, mean, I don't have kids, but I get how people can get very paranoid about certain things. Uh, I, it's such a case-by-case basis, but I think about all you can do is just be sensible about it and explain to the person that you're not taking pictures of their kids, and uh, you know you'd be happy to delete the photo if you want. And you know it, you kind of have to judge. People are going to get upset about anything at some level, so you just kind of have to judge the situation. I don't think, quite honestly, that taking the stance of I have a legal right to do this when somebody's concerned about the safety of their kids is going to be a very effective strategy. But, you know, you're kind of going to have to judge it yourself. Catherine, what do you think? Well, I, I mean, that just goes on. I kind of just going off what Ron said in the sense that I certainly wouldn't get in the parent's face and say, these are my rights. You know, I think more than anything, people get mad at you, whether they have a right to be mad at you or not, is sort of irrelevant. The, avoiding that sort of like, I'm right and you're wrong and just moving forward and I think the goal would be just to diffuse the situation. And so if the parents obviously visibly upset, then yeah, you could say, well, I have the right, blah, 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 and be self-righteous about it. Or you can just say, Oh, I'm so sorry. 
you know, I, I didn't mean to do anything that would offend you. I won't take any more pictures of your child. I wouldn't offer to delete them either. If I got the shot and I liked it, I wouldn't delete it. But, you know, I would just say, I'm really sorry. I, I didn't mean to do anything that would make you upset. I, I won't take any more shots of your child. Thank you for coming, bringing this to my attention. And yeah. it's humbling and it's sort of like you want to say, well, I have a right, blah, blah, blah. But what's that going to get you? Just an angry yeah. parent. Yeah, people you know, want to have control. To, I have a yeah. tendency, and I, and I have to say as a parent, um, uh, if you take a picture of my kid, um, and, and I hate to say this, but primarily if you're a guy and you take a picture of one of my kids, um, I will take a picture almost immediately of you with my iPhone. And I have a GPS and, who, and a picture of you. You know, and, and um, you know, and, and it's just, that's how I react. I don't really say anything, but I, but I, I've seen people take pictures of my kids and I immediately take pictures of them, <laughs> you know, and that's how I react to it. You know, and, and I've had guys go up and like, why are you taking a picture of, of, of me? And I said, because you just took a picture of my kid, you know, and. Well, I wouldn't think too many people could argue with that. I think that's, you know, I was you like, know, I was like, you know, yeah. sensible. And, and, but I, but I, you know, that's my, that's kind of my, um, you know, it, cause it put, it allays my fears to some degree because it, it takes away their an- anonymity. You know, as a parent, I just go, well, I now, you know, they know that I know that they, you know, I have pictures, I have locations, I have times, I have, you know, all this other stuff. And, um, and I had, I've had a couple weird interactions, uh, you know, over the years. And, um, so it's, it's just kind of, that's how I, you know, cause it, it, if, if you were worried about something, it would be as someone who was, if someone was a little off and doing that for an off reason, uh, they would be probably a little stupid to do anything after that, after you took a photo of them. You know, yeah. you know, so, so the, uh, so that's kind of how I, I kind of react to it rather than saying anything. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, so the, the point is, is that, uh, you know, that's how I handle that. Uh, I have to admit as a guy, I don't take pictures of other people's kids, you know, unless they ask me to, or I'm at a, if I'm at a family function or if I'm at a wedding yeah. or something uh, like uh, that, yeah. you know, I, I feel open to it. I'm not going to take pictures of a stranger's kids. Yeah. Certainly not in a situation where it's, a, it's just an isolated kid standing there and you're, yeah, yeah, I, I just don't. Again, I don't. As, I don't as, touch a, that. as a guy, forget it. I'm not going to even go. There, as a girl, as, see, as a woman, you can you can oftentimes get around that. Like if a woman comes up and, to me and tells me that my kids are really cute, uh, I don't really think much of it. If a guy does that, I take a picture. Of it's kind of like you know, and and you know, they go through. The, you know, it's just a, it, it, it's a different the different thing, and you have to understand that those are those are the realities of yep. uh, of the situation, and uh, you know, and I. Uh, and I think about that kind of stuff every time there was an Amber Alert here in California or Northern California, you know, and I, that's, that's what people are worried about. You know, that's why they don't want you taking pictures of their kids, you know, and, um, everyone saw a one hour photo, right? So, so the, um, uh, so the, the issue is, is you just have to be sensitive to that. And, um, in different parts of the United States, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble by trying to call your rights out, you know? And so, um, you know, things can escalate very quickly. People are very protective of their kids. And, um, and I, you know, you know and I, just, I was just going to say a sort of a technical point to, to your comment, Catherine, that you wouldn't delete the photos. Um, yeah, I've had great luck with some of these photo rescue tools that can pull deleted photos back off of the cards. <laughs> uh, they work really. And, and, and this is actually sort of worth noting uh, in general for photographers is that if you're having something weird or a photo disappears from your card, which I've had happen, or you accidentally delete it, or in some cases you may be in a situation where you are told to delete it, the thing to do is to not shoot anything else on that card, put it away, because as soon as you start shooting new stuff, it can overwrite it. But if all you did is delete it, that photo is absolutely still on that card, and any photo rescue tool can can recover that. Yep. So you can easily delete stuff. And then, like I said, just don't, 
take that card out of the camera immediately, put it away, and just know that you know you're not going to use that card anymore. You're not going to overwrite anything, and you'll be able to get anything back off of that that you deleted, even if you formatted. And these, the and these card. tools have been around for a long time. I actually deleted a whole card for a police officer in Boston one time, and then this was like ten years ago, and then just took it right back and recovered everything. Yeah, <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, you know, and, and because he didn't have the right to tell me I couldn't take pictures, but I'm not going to argue with the police officer. Right, yeah. and you know, you know and so I was just like, even with the if you you know some you get a picture of somebody's kid inadvertently, I think it's I do the same thing. I would probably say, sure, I'll delete it just because that's the easiest way to defuse the situation. But then I'll go back and you know keep the card and recover them and see if if it's a really great shot and I want it, then you know I can decide later. Yeah, I so. don't, I don't know. I wouldn't offer to delete it though because it's more work for me to have to go. Yeah, I was, yeah. <laughs> no, if I, I was get like it. some amazing shot that I was super loved and. I, I'm actually a worry worry wart, so I'd be not really wanting to delete it, worried yeah. that maybe I couldn't get it back. Or, I mean, I, if somebody's demanding you delete it, then I guess that's yeah, a, I think a that's little different. I but yeah. I wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, I understand. I'm going to delete the photo. You know, I would yeah. try to I would try to diff- diffuse the situation in a way that has minimal impact on me. Yeah, and, and I guess you know, and, and, and depends on you know how big of your business is street photography. Because if it is, then you, you know you can get into all of these these pieces of of that of that structure. I have to admit that I'm I spend a lot of time in countries where if I get into a into a tit for tat, I'll end up in you know prison. So so you know I so I have a tendency to just be very quick and, and go you know there's a lot of fish in the sea. There's a lot of photo- you know a lot of pictures I can take, and if this one isn't going to work out, I'm just going to delete it. You know, and then I'll figure out if I want to recover it later. Or I want to you know I just want to get out of the situation. You know, and and uh, uh, and if I get caught, you know, taking photos. I mean, I take a lot. I'm very good at taking photos from the hip. You know, and and I mean, really good. I, I, one of my little skill sets is that I used to walk down the street of San Francisco and take pictures of signs from my like right while I'm holding my camera where it is, so that I could get good at knowing what my lens looks like when I'm aiming at a certain location. You know, specifically so that I could take photos where I didn't look like I was taking photos. Anyway, so that's a. Whole other process, but it, once I get into that into that mix, I tend to just try to diffuse it quickly. So, um, so anyway, lots of different approaches. It's great for our listeners. A lot of different uh, ways of handling that. Uh, so, I'm going to mix the fourth question into my recommendation for the uh, for the week, and then we'll go into the uh, the, t- the uh, tips of the picks of the week. Um, and this is a uh, Mac user Fred says he's frustrated. That Firewire 800 seems to be no longer supporting supported by any of the CF car, card reader manufacturers, even though the high end uh, cameras still have huge files and still use CF cards. Is USB 2 really the only option? And so I'm going to make my recommendation uh, because I used the one that I was planning to make. I don't know why I got into it, but talking about Photofly, um, is the SanDisk does make an extreme Firewire reader, and you can still get it uh, on, um, and they're not cheap, but you can still get them um, on um, on Amazon. Uh, dot com. Uh, so SanDisk, and, and these are going to be going away. So if you want them, uh, if, and you still need 800, FireWire 800, I think they're the only ones that I know of. Uh, I think there are a couple manufacturers that might make these 800s, but those are the only ones that I have seen. Um, there's a, you know, they, uh, but those are the FireWire 800s. The reason that they're not going to make any more is because we are very quickly moving towards Thunderbolt. And um, you will, once you have a computer with Thunderbolt, you will never look back to 800. Um, I looked at a Sonnet, I believe, has a – did you did you see this at NAB, Ron? Were you at NAB? No, I was not. No. So Sonnet has a four CF card reader with with Thunderbolt. Nice. That, that should be shipping sometime this fall. It will pull – if you have a if you have an SSD RAID, um, you know, that's, that's connected to your computer via Thunderbolt, 
it will pull all of your um, – you can put four compact flashes into that reader and pull them at the full speed that, that those cards are capable of, of uh, reading you know, into, the, into the drive. Nice. So, so, you know, so you're talking about like a 32 gig moving out, you know, being cleared in four minutes, you know, but four of them. So like, especially for like wedding photographers or event photographers or, you know, that type of thing where you're taking tons and tons and tons of images, being able to just pull these off. I mean, you're the 800 is, I mean, if you already have an 800 and you're not planning to upgrade, this is going to be a pain and you should go out quickly before these are all gone. But the reason that they're not paying attention to them is everyone's looking at building the next generation, which is going to be for, you know, USB three or Thunderbolt on the Mac, um, and you're going to see speeds that you just never saw with 800, and you're not going to, you know, probably look back, um, you know, yep. once you once you've have done the upgrade. So, so that's my recommendation. Um, kind of a mixture of those two things. Catherine, what's your uh, recommendation? Well, I'm going to go down the educational road and mm-hmm. talk about um, Rick Salmon's Creative Live Workshop that's coming up in October. Awesome and. I think for anyone that wants to get into photography and learn about the overall, he does all types of photography. So it's good for somebody that likes landscapes, portraits, anything, any kind of genre. Um, but he's just such an inspiring individual and his philosophy. And he just, he's one of those people that doesn't live by boundaries and limits. And, you know, he has that sort of inspirational note to him, but then he's also so knowledgeable and so good at his craft so for our overall, over well-rounded educational experience, I think the Creative Live Workshop, and it's only $150, which is crazy to me how cheap it is. Yeah, Rick, um, Rick Salmon like, is fantastic. Yeah, just, I think yeah. it's like three days. And yeah, three-day yeah. three weekend workshop. Um, yeah. And it's $99 if you pre-order the course. And so it's kind of like a, to me, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because, and the other thing that's great about Rick and you, this, what Alex just said, it's so true. He's just such a great guy and he's so entertaining Yeah, that it's not like you're going to be in this three day course and it's like, Oh, I got to you know, sit down and take notes and learn so much, which you will, but it's going to be, you're going to be entertained throughout, um, the entire experience. And would you say, Alex, if it was anyone else, he's so energetic. Yeah. I would think he'd be dead after the three days, but knowing him, I don't know. Yeah, he's 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 great. He's funny. It's uh, you know he's very passionate and uh, definitely yeah. yeah definitely. And he is one of the most giving, most generous. There's not a lot of people that are at his success level that are educators for the right reasons. And what I mean by that is he has pure motives, and he just wants to help people in the industry. And so, and that you you know with that approach as a student, you're just bound to learn so much more. So anyway, that's my pick of the week is Rick Salmon's weekend on creative live. And then you can just go to creativelive.com and I'm sure you guys have a link on the site. So fantastic. Great. pick. Andy, Andy sounds like Christopher Walken, which is awesome. And he plays guitar. (laughs) All those things. Oh, one last thing too. He's giving out, um, he wants to have studio assistants in studio in New York. Um, or his studio is how many times can I say studio in one sentence? <laughs> um, but anyway, and so he's basically has a contest for people to enter to come and actually get, be able to work with him in, in live person. So extremely awesome. Really cool. So check it out. The deadline's like, um, September 26th. So go to the, it, it explains how to apply on the creative live website. Perfect. And, uh, Ron, what is your uh, pick for the week? 
Uh, well, I was going to pick that PhotoFly stuff, and people should go check that out. Just Google uh, Autodesk PhotoFly, and you can see it. But since it came up, I will mention the uh, photo rescue software that I use. Uh, I have not done – I've been using this for years, and I have not done any kind of a recent survey for what else is out there. There may be something that's uh, cheaper. This is uh, – I use something called Photo Rescue uh, from a company called datarescue.com. And uh, it's always worked for me. It's, I think, 30 bucks, which is why I said it wouldn't surprise me if somebody hadn't come out with something that's in the App Store or that's cheaper or something like that. But I can definitely say that this one has worked for me for many, many years, and it does exactly what I want. I'll put in a card that has had a problem, been corrupted, or, or I just accidentally deleted something. And uh, it just kind of chugged away, and it has this mode where it just finds everything on the card, and it shows you all the photos that it was able to recover, and then you can do a reasonably good job of tossing them into some directory somewhere. Uh, it saved my butt several times. So I would, like I said, I can definitely endorse this one. It's and great. Maybe it's somebody wants to look around. Yeah. Same well, and I, I think just one last tip going on that. Don't wait till you have a failed card to buy it. Yeah. yeah. Because then you'll be in panic mode, and yeah. it's yep. only it's thirty bucks. Like, well, and also get, get buy it now and have it there, so that when you it's Friday at nine o'clock and you realize your cards you're not tripping out all weekend or whatever. No, absolutely, yeah, definitely get it there and and uh, and play with it a little bit, so you know what you can and can't do, so that you're ready to you know those are things to, to yeah to constantly prep. So uh, and, and you know just just one more note to go along with that: uh, if you ever do sell or give away your camera that has cards on it. Remember that this exists. Yes, be aware oh, that this does yeah, exist. Yeah, good point. Uh, I found I found a compact flash or a, a SD card like lying in the street the other day. The first thing I did was bring it home and see what was on there. There was nothing <laughs> nothing good, unfortunately. But, no pornographic photos. Yeah, I was hoping, but okay, <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, uh, Catherine, where can people find you? Oh, they well, you know, it's so funny. I'm so used to giving out Twitter handle, but now I'm kind of like a G plus four. Oh, she's moved over. Yeah, we had that conversation. No, but um, they can find me. My blog is actually the best place to find me. So it's just Catherine Hall, and it's spelled Catherine with a C, like Catherine the Great, C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-H-A-L-L dot net backslash blog. And all of my social networking icons are there, so you can find me in the way that you see best fit. And find me on Twitphoto, which is every Tuesday live, and then we have the podcast on Twitter. Dot yeah. TV backslash photo. Yeah, if you if you like if you like Twip, you should definitely check out Twit Photo. It's just a great companion to uh, what we're doing here. So yeah. fantastic, Ron. Where can people find you? Uh, I'm still a Twitter whore. So Ron Brinkman, R O N B R I N K M A N N. Regarding the Lytra stuff, I did a blog post on my blog, which is digitalcomposting.com, which I know is a mouthful, but I just kind of talk a little bit about some of the ramifications of Lytra-like technologies uh, that I think a lot of people aren't talking about yet. And I am on Google+, Plus, but I can't remember the 18-digit number that I have to give you for people to find me. Excellent. And uh, with that, uh, we are, make sure to go over to uh, thisweekinphoto.com where you'll find links to our Google Plus profile, our Facebook fan page, and our Twitter profile and all that other fun stuff. And if you haven't already, grab your copy of our free 10 Quip Tips ebook that you can find at thisweekinphoto.com slash ebook. And if you are looking for me, of course, Alex, I'm on the Twitters, Alex Lindsay, all one word. And with that, it's time to take the lens cap off. (laughs) 
This Week in Photo is a PixelCore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn. With technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.